give the Lord a hand here this morning. Good to see everybody. You guys multiplied since last week, I think. Somebody fed you guys after midnight. Something happened. It's good to see everybody. Welcome to Influence. Man, it's been a roller coaster. I've been on a... um, I kind of haven't stopped moving for almost two weeks or so now. Been a lot of traveling. Uh, we're right in the middle. This is actually headed into the release week for my new book, Woke Jesus. And we're doing a series. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't need that, but I appreciate it. Um, you know, I've, I've said about this, and, and I feel this way probably about almost everything I've written, except for the bad stuff, um, is, is that when I look at this, when I read this, I, I just see something that... I want to just see get to the world. I don't feel a lot of ownership over it. I don't even feel like sometimes I read it and I go, oh, this is good. And I forget that it's mine. And, and, I, and, and really, ultimately, I, I believe it's the Lord's. And I want this to be for him. Um, I know, you know, from a marketing standpoint, you look at a book like this and you go, wow, that looks rather divisive. This big picture of Jesus with a socialism symbol and, you know, woke Jesus real big. And, you know, it feels political and it feels all this sort of stuff. That's marketing departments at publishers. Um, The message in this book, I believe, is about unifying, for me, it's about unifying the church over primary issues, seeing breakdown in denominational lines that we can come together in order to praise Jesus, in order to, uh, uh, and then really push aside false ideas and false beliefs. And I really think that we are where we are, and I talked about this a lot last week. This is our second week of the series, and, and this, is, this whole series is probably a little bit more conversational and, and, um, than, than some of the you know, other things I do in the past where I'm verse by verse. We do a lot of verse by verse teaching here. I'm, I'm not gonna necessarily do that throughout this series, um, but just know that's, that's our norm if you're new. Um, and I've done, I don't know, probably 300 interviews over the last 24 months. Uh, I think we're up to with media outlets on this this subject and all the subjects kind of related to it. And sometimes you get sometimes you get 40 minutes on a show, sometimes you get five minutes on a show. But I kind of feel like that this series, I'm able to kind of unpack and explore some things that that like I didn't even have time maybe to always even write about to help people understand this. And so, um, you know, this is not gonna be verbatim through the book. The, the book is really just, you know, it, it's, a, it's to maybe help support this in this, you know, uh, with you, but, but really I want you to understand the subject matter. I, I gave a quote last week from Irenaeus. I'm not gonna read the whole quote again, but I referenced it at the start of the book that the reason, he, he talks about in the, in the early church that the reason why the first century church, he wrote this in the second century, struggled to refute the heresy of Gnosticism or the false teaching of Gnosticism was because they didn't understand Gnosticism. Because Gnosticism is really, really complex. It, it's a, it's a you know, faith that has a belief in multiple deities, multiple heavens and layers. Um, all, I mean, there's literally you know, countless kind of demigods and angels that it talks about, all these bizarre things. But it presents itself, and at that time presented itself as if it was the Christian worldview. That's what was dangerous about Gnosticism. It wasn't just, here's this pagan thing over here. It was, we could call it Christian Gnosticism. And so it blended into the church in a way that people were trying to make sense of it, and a lot of people were led astray by it because it was very convincing. 
and it was confusing enough that it could be convincing. You've heard speakers before that say a lot of big words and they say a lot of smart sounding things and you just assume they know what they're talking about because they have maybe a good vocabulary. Well, just because you have a good vocabulary doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. And that's what we found in Gnosticism. And so Irenaeus wrote this and he basically said, look, the, the reason why the first century church couldn't break this down, they couldn't deconstruct this, was because they didn't get it. And so he wrote a book to help them understand it. Um, I, I, did, I told you last week that that's really the spirit in which I've brought this, is I want to help you. I, I don't care if you buy the book, you don't buy the book. Most of you guys have already bought the book. And so this is not a sales pitch on a Sunday morning. Um, we had that already. You guys bought the book, and I appreciate it. Um, the, what this is, this is an opportunity. I want you to understand the material. I want you to get it. Because what I'm interested in is not you buying the book. I'm interested in the conversation that you're going to have at lunch with somebody at the workplace or, or with your, your, your nephew or your, your, you know, your child or your grandson or your neighbor, that these topics will come up. And ultimately, I know that they're already coming up. And sometimes they come up and you don't even know that they're coming up because you don't hear the language. Everything that we have today is about using strategic language. It's called new speak or double speak. It's words that are used for a specific purpose. Just recently, there was um, a, a man that was basically, you know, um, you know, went crazy on a subway, was, you know, threatening multiple people, attacking people. We had somebody subdue him, and the man ends up dying in the process who was the instigator. And then we have the court and the DA start going after the man who subdued him, which 10 years ago, he would have been called a hero for saving people's lives. And now he's a threat to society, okay? And, but the point that I wanna share with this is this person who was the instigator on the subway was referred to as being unhoused, okay? Not homeless, but unhoused. Now, we hear that, people hear that, and they go, well, that's somebody being politically correct. It's not being politically correct. That's not what that's about. That's what they want you to think it's about. It's not what it's about. By putting the D at the end of unhoused, it's unhoused, that means that somebody's responsible for it. That, that, there is, that he is a product of an oppressive society that it's somebody else's fault and it's, he has no personal liability nor responsibility in the matter. And, and why do I bring that up in church when you're not supposed to talk about that sort of stuff? Because it sounds political? Because it's not political, it's theology. And here's the theology behind it. The theology, it's the same thing that Augustine faced you know, literally thousands of years ago, is the eradication of the idea of original sin. That, there, that we are now no longer, unless you hold a different view, you are now no longer responsible for your sin because it is an oppressive world or an oppressive state or an oppressive white you know, power structure that has, that has, that's responsible for problems in society, okay? And so this, this is... This is all, everything that's happening around you, it's very easy to start thinking it's, it's political, it's theological, it, that's, that's the downstream effect of this. 
Politics is downstream of theology. And so what we're seeing today and, and, and what's happening in our world is happening as a result of a strong-held religious belief that is then shaping everything else that we're seeing. I'm going to break that down a little bit. If you came here and you had no idea I was talking about this, I feel like maybe I should apologize to you because like, it's going intense real fast with this. And, and you know, I, I, I kind of jokingly say apologize. I'll, ultimately, I think this is going to be for your benefit because you can stick your head in the sand and go, I just don't want to talk about these topics. I don't want to think about these things. These, the people pushing this and the ideology pushing this doesn't care that you don't want to think about it. They don't care. There is, there is an agenda, and I don't think it's the Democrat. I don't think it's the left. I don't think, it's, I don't think that's the ultimate thing. I believe that there is a doctrine of demons that is pushing an agenda. And, and you know, as, as I think the devil's really good at, at kind of like getting into something and then having us just point at each other and think that the other person's the enemy, we forget what the Bible tells us that our fight is not against flesh and blood. Now, flesh and blood have grabbed a hold of this agenda and are carrying it out and are, you know, uh, uh, I think, you know, uh, uh, you know, instigating it, everything else, promoting it. Um, but ultimately, I believe that, and I, I don't want this to, I, I don't want to be, I, I don't like being super spiritual. It's just not who I am. Um, and, and there's, there's probably people that would love to criticize me as a pastor for not being spiritual enough sometimes sounding. But, but I want you to hear this because if we fail to recognize that there is a spiritual thing that's happening here, this doesn't just go on by itself. You don't just look around, I mean, look around the world. You don't go, oh yeah, remember that one day that everybody started saying the exact same thing and started acting the exact same way? And, and, and like completely got rid of logic and reason and you know 2,000 years of, of values and everything else that just happened. If you buy that that just happened, then you know it's just as crazy as an evolutionist going, this just happened. There was nothing, and then all of a sudden it exploded into a universe. And by nothing, I don't mean space, I mean nothing. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And so we could debate the in-between, but, but the only logical place is that something caused it. And I would say the same is true for today, that something is causing this, and we're seeing the effects of that. And so, um, again, if you're here visiting, I don't know what church you've been to, I don't know what it's like. Uh, I, there's some great churches in this area. We actually partner with a lot of them. We had a, uh, um, a luncheon here uh, earlier this year with... Um, uh, 30, 35 pastors from around this area that are committed to biblical orthodoxy. Uh, I used to feel like we were the only church in town and that we were a prophet in a cave and what I didn't know is that the Lord was really reserving a lot of people around here. But I'll tell you that this, this area is a hub for wokeism. It's a hub for that. Uh, and actually, it's not just a hub for wokeism in general, it's a hub for Christian wokeism. And, and that, is, that is very prevalent. And we have several religious groups in the area that sort of you know, create this brackish water of, of theological wokeism. And I'll define some of these things more uh, if it, you know, for those that weren't here last week. Um, but we have to talk about this stuff. It doesn't have to be our focus. It doesn't have to be the only thing we talk about. But we have to set aside real time to talk about these things. 
Because look, there's more important stuff in our faith than defending faith. Like our personal growth and development in our relationship with Christ. But your personal growth and development in your relationship with Christ will be stifled if you are not able to discern truth from fallacy. If you're not able to discern scripture and, and good biblical exegesis from really poor interpretations that are used as propaganda to try to get you to grab a hold of something. Okay, and so we have to take a moment to at least deal with this sometimes. Because if we don't, we have the same problem that the church has had in the past is we're not ready for things. And I've been saying this for a long time. The church, Christians are still stuck trying to figure out gay marriage. Okay, that was like 2008. Okay, in some cases before that. What is happening now is we're moving into transgenderism. We're moving into transhumanism. Uh, we're moving into, you know, uh, we have, you know, kids that think they're animals. Um, and they're identifying with that. We have adults that are having surgeries to make themselves look like animals because they believe that's our identity. And right now, the church is completely unprepared for any of that. I mean, they're not ready. We're not ready at all. We're not ready. And there's not ministry set up. There's not, there's not, I mean, this is, we literally have a, a moral, emotional, mental, spiritual war zone happening around us. And we've not set up a triage unit knowing that people are going to be showing up on stretchers soon. That's right. That's good. And we have to figure out how to do that. Um, none of that's in the book, but that's, that's part of it. Thank you. So, so let's just dive in. Uh, you have this, if you, if you download our app already, I have no, pretty extensive notes in there this week, uh, and I'm just gonna continue from where I went last week. Because I'm an optimist, I actually thought I was gonna get through all this last week, and I didn't come close. So, and because I'm an optimist, I actually think I'm gonna get through it this week, and we'll see if that's true or not. So, as I shared last week, and really this is what we left on, is that there's, really, there's three ideologies that shaped wokeism in our modern world, specifically wokeism in the church. Um, there's other things that have shaped probably wokeism just in society at large, but there's very specific things that has brought that or, or allowed that to get access into faith or into specifically into the Christian church. Um, those three things are the birth of critical theory, critical theology. Uh, Marx was um, kind of mid-1800s, and uh, uh, specifically 1818 to 1883 is when he died. Um, he was a major, major factor in that. He built on the work of, of Hegel and then Kant before uh, Hegel. Um, and then there was something known as the historical Jesus movement. This was sort of happening simultaneously during the same time as Marx and actually started a little bit before Marx. Uh, and this was a movement that, uh, and I'll, I'll unpack this more, but it basically was a, a movement that was elevating Jesus's humanity over his divinity. Um, and this was very, very prevalent in Europe at, at kind of a, a central spot in Germany. It's no surprise that so much has happened in a place like Germany because it was the birth of the historical Jesus movement. Um, uh, Hegel used a lot, uh, Hegel and Kant were deeply influenced by the historical Jesus movement. That's almost never talked about, um, but this was a false movement, preaching a false Jesus, preaching extra biblical ideas about Christ. 
and they were deeply influenced by it. And so when they wrote about, although Kant and and um, Hegel both talked about Jesus, these German philosophers, they did, they did not, they were not speaking about the Jesus of the Bible. Kant goes as far as to actually tell you that outright. Um, and so they were preaching a historical Jesus, um, a form of the historical Jesus movement. And then, and then lastly, um, due to the influence of really both of those things, we have them combining to form what became known as liberation theology. And, and in America, that was called Black Liberation Theology. We are, the current pope is a liberation theologian. Um, Mother Teresa was a liberation theologian. Uh, I, my last publisher, I chose to take that line out because I thought it would offend a lot of people. In hindsight, I wish I would have left it in because people needed to know sooner that that was the case. And so she might be a hero of yours, and I'm not saying that she didn't perform good things in some ways, but the driving ideology behind what was happening is known as liberation theology. I'm going to break that down a little bit. It sounds very spiritual. It has a tendency to look very spiritual. When you start looking at it and understanding what it was, we see something else behind it. And so uh, I'm going to try to do my best to do this. The, the, The reality is that, you know, I don't know, sometimes people come to church and they leave their brain at the door. I just don't believe in that. And so this, you might have stepped into what feels like a college lecture today and that's either gonna be good and you're gonna love it or you're gonna hate it and never show up again. Uh, I hope that you love it, but I, <clears throat> I, I just don't believe that we share, you know, you know, one funny story, you know, two scriptures and we pray and then we go home. I, I just, I'm just, I can't do that. And so, and I don't think that the time that we're in calls for that. Uh, and so we have to, you know, there, there was a day when Christians were leading the charge in inventions and innovation and, and just, you know, uh, uh, moral excellence and brilliance in these things. And we are seeing that fall by the wayside. Uh, and not just seeing it, we, it has fallen by the wayside. Now the best innovations that are happening are not Christians anymore uh, in many cases. And so um, I think that the problem is, is that we've, we've forgotten how to think and we've stopped learning. And, and I think that there is a way to, uh, uh, to dive. This is what causes me to not finish my messages is when I do this. So, all right, I'm going to stop. You get the point. So let's talk about critical theory for a second. Basically, this was born after, and same with the historical Jesus movement, it was born after the Enlightenment. So it was in this post-Enlightenment time period that critical theory really came about, that Hegel and Kant were able to be Hegel and Kant because of the place where the world was at at that time. And, and the Enlightenment brought about a, an emphasis on logic, reason, scientific method, Darwin. There was, there was you know, man's ability to understand, man's ability to reason, uh, man's ability to be able to you know, uh, categorize and, and, and really you know, uh, um, uh, evaluate and discern all the different aspects of not just nature, but also history and science is, is really what happened during that Enlightenment period. And so in the post-Enlightenment, the world had changed. And the post-Enlightenment, the Bible for the first time was looked at and people were starting to go, I don't know if we can trust this because it talks about miracles. And as post-enlightenment people, we know there's no such thing as miracles. Jesus couldn't have walked on water. Jesus couldn't have fed the 5,000. Jesus couldn't have raised from the dead. So there's something about this story. There might be certain elements that are true. And this is where you have basically what we call red letter Christians is they take to the moral teachings of Jesus 
but they don't believe any of the supernaturalness of who he is, the divinity of who he is. And they just hold to this, this idea of Jesus as an example. Jesus was more than an example. Yes, he was an example, but he was more than an example. He was both God and man. And anything less than that is it, it, you, 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 it actually contradicts his existence. You know, it's, it's the C.S. Lewis line of, you know, liar, lunatic, or the son of God. You, you don't have somebody who claims that he's God and be a good example if he's not really God. We call that a crazy person, okay? The, the a Marxist today would call him unhoused. Um, so we have this thing that was born called critical theory, and critical theory ultimately... Um, you know, it, it's, and I have a little bit in here on Hegel. I'm going to focus probably more on Marx today, actually. But, but Hegel, um, Hegel brought about this thing that became known as the Hegelian dialectic. It's basically thesis, which is an idea, a, the, 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 the commonly held uniform idea of the time. That's what he meant by the thesis. The spirit of the age. And then he would introduce what he called the antithesis, the opposite of that, okay? So the opposite, or the, the, we could say the spirit of the age for most of the 1900s in America was capitalism. And then we have an introduction to the antithesis to that, which is socialism or communism. And then we get what Hegel called the synthesis, okay? This synergistic shift that happens when those two things meet in that brackish water. And that is democratic socialism. And he believed that this method was a way in which we move civilization forward through conflict and kind of continually flip the world upside down until you, ra- it's, it's, like, it's like taking a stone block and just you know, flipping it like a, rolling it like a mattress down the hallway until eventually you round all the edges of it and you find something that's 100% agreeable and uniform. And he believed that once you put life and all the ideas of society through this dialectic, and basically dialectics, just this argument, this equation for arguing through life, that what it would produce eventually was a unified perspective where the entire world would have total agreement over every single issue. It's what I call the return to the Tower of Babel. And this is the goal. Just as the Tower of Babel, we talked about this thing briefly last week, was, a, was, a, uh, was intended to be a place of refuge for those who were afraid that God was going to flood the earth again, the, there is this, this, the birth of critical theory created an ideology where there's no longer, we're not trying to find actually a building to go into to save ourselves. We're trying to find an ideology to go into to save ourselves. That is the tower. And so if we can get inside of that ideology and if we can all say the same thing, what Hegel believed is that God, and he didn't believe in the God of the Bible, although he uses the language of the Bible, he hijacked that. He believed that God, who was in a state of um, becoming God, He didn't believe that God is and was, always will be. He didn't believe that God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He believed that God was becoming. Basically, that God was in a state of figuring out his own perfection. Okay? 
And so he believed that when God sees the perfection of humanity, that he will, that he will basically then recognize his own perfection and that our spirit and his spirit will be unified into this sort of spiritual utopia for all eternity. And on the surface, and I'm kind of, you know, I'm pulling this out, but when you read it in Hegel, um, and, and again, everybody who reads Hegel would tell you it's miserable. I'm, I like sometimes miserable philosophy reading, and so like part of me, like I enjoyed it because I'm reading it, and it's so, it's so sneaky that it's enjoyable for me to figure it out. But it's, it's, it's so sneaky that the average person would read it and just go, this guy's a really deep thinking Christian. And he's not, he's far from it, okay? And so, but this was, this shaped the world. And Kant before him shaped the world. I mean, in, in many ways, Kant was the one, Kant, Kant doesn't get talked about as much today, but if you ask a philosopher today, you know, he would tell you we are in a Kantian world. That, that Kant was the one that really did this, but Hegel kind of jumped on, on the coattails of that. And then also then Marx reads Hegel, comes after him, and goes, this guy's good, except for he got it wrong. And he says, I'm gonna flip him on his head. And what, what he believed that Hegel got wrong is this is not about God at all, it's about man. And that when we see our perfection, that we will then shape this world in our own image, and we will see uh, basically a socialist utopia that will come into existence and will continue in perpetuity for all eternity. Hegel, or excuse me, Marx is often called, um, you know, an economist because he wrote a book called Das Kapital. Uh, uh, he's called a, you know, a social theorist. He's called a lot of different philosopher. Marx was a theologian. And he had a theology, and he was against Christianity. There's been some work that's been done to actually show that he was most likely a Satanist. But Marx, the, the real, the father of communism and socialism as we know it today, he, he ultimately was, was proclaiming and writing about and teaching a theology that is by works. And you have to do the work and if you don't do the work, then you will be submitted in order to do the work, and we will put you under submission until you agree to do the work. That is the, that is the, it's, it's, no, it's no different than a radical Islamic caliphate that says that you have to submit to Allah, you have to submit to the caliphate in order to, you know, to not be beheaded. For Marx, it was you have to submit to the work he meant something very specific when he said that, or else, or else we're going to run you over. And and you know the 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 thing that was driving this, and probably the idea of Marx that's kind of talked about the most, is this idea of seizing the means of production. Seizing the means of production. Seizing the means of production is commonly thought about as referring to economics. And you hear this and talked about in socialism that you know, basically corporations and, and capitalism, these things can't be trusted, so we have to create regulations around this in order to ensure that production can happen in a way in which um, uh, meets the needs of all of the people of society and that this is kind of the heart behind you know, on, on what would be proclaimed on the positive sides of seizing the means of production. Because we have people who are unhoused. 
We have people that are, are down and out. We have people that, again, even the term marginalized, that, that term, it's, it has, it's, it's implying something, that somebody marginalized, marginalized them. Right. It's your fault that they're like that. It's our fault that they're like that. And so this is implied, and unless you do the work, then you're to blame. The nature of woke, and why am I talking about Marxism if we're talking about woke? Because woke is Marx. Wokeism is, it is cultural Marxism. Actually, I have a definition of Marxism, or excuse me, a definition of wokeism. I think it's, it's broader than what I'm giving you right now, but a neo-Gnostic ideology, we talked a little bit more, more about Gnosticism last week, rooted in Hegelian and Marxist thought, reinforced by nefariously crafted arguments from feminists, diversity officers, critical theorists, communists, social justice activists, and progressive pastors. And I'll stress the last part in our case um, that we're really more focused on. Um, when Marx started off, he saw the problem of injustice in society as a result of a conflict that existed between two groups of people, the proletariat, the working class, and the bourgeoisie, which was sort of this, this upper class, those in control. And he believed that if you could show the proletariat the value of seizing the means of production, if you could show them the value of kind of this Marxist theory of the work, uh, he would call it, then they would basically rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. And so, and this, this, it, it, that happened in places. But what was found very quickly, and we, we see this in a failed, um, a, a failed communist revolution in Hungary. We also see this in a, in, in a failed uh, communist uh, revolution um, you know, in, in really other parts of the world, specifically in Europe. Because Marx thought what, what happened in Russia and the Soviet Union would also happen in Europe once the proletariat in Europe saw this. But they didn't. And why? What they found out was that there's people that think they're happy but aren't really happy, but they don't know that they're not happy. And as long as they think they're happy, then they won't have, have an uprising. And essentially it's saying that like, hey, that, that, that person that makes you know, $35,000 a year, but they have five or six best friends that come over every weekend and they're cooking hot, hot dogs and hamburgers on the grill, and they're laughing and they're telling stories, and they sleep well at night, and they don't have stress in their world, but, but they, are, they are being oppressed and marginalized by society, but they don't know it. And you think you're happy doing that, hanging out with your friends and having a good time, but you're really not. And it didn't work, because the people were actually happy. They had faith in God, they, they loved life, they enjoyed themselves, they realized that life is more than about like political control, and you know what, I don't care, I'm just gonna just do my thing. And so they found out something very quickly, and this, this happened after really the, the death of Marx, and, and really it was neo-Marxists after him that, that put this together. Uh, in the 60s, we had a figure named Marcuse, 
uh, Herbert Marcuse, who was you know, really a rock star. Some of you guys might even know that name. He was a rock star during the 60s, kind of in academic thought. He was, he was one of the ones who was basically proclaiming the message that we have to start training children in uh, critical theory at a young age. This was pushed by him. He, there was a famous um, interview he does with a, a gal from PBS, and she did an unbelievable job interviewing him, really exposed a lot of things, and, and, and essentially says, are you saying that we should be teaching these things to children? And he's like, well, I'm not gonna teach these things to children, but if, but if school teachers started teaching this to children, I think it would be a good idea. And we are seeing something. This is why it's so important we realize this didn't happen yesterday. We can't just look at the current administration and go, it's their fault. There, there's a part, there's culpability there, but this has been a snowball that's been rolling downhill for a very, very long time that's gotten us to where we are today, okay? So this idea in Marxism of seizing the means of production, it became, um, it, it, it was thought about as economic, but if you really look at Marx, it's not about economics. Economics is just a, it's sort of, again, downstream from the thought. What is the ultimate capital in a civilization? People. People. Marx understood this. The ultimate thing that you have to seize the production of is the production of people. You have to seize how their thoughts are developed. You have to seize how they're made into the people that they are, how their ideology is formed, how their religion is formed. That unless you seize how people are developed, a good Marxist knows that you can never fully seize the means of production. Because just if you take over the factories, just if you take over corporate America, you can't, you can't change somebody's heart and you're always gonna still have conflict and, and an uprising from the people unless you fully seize the means of production, which is the way in which people think and their ideas are developed. This is why a place like communist China regulates what churches can say. It's why they regulate where churches can go. It's why they regulate where a cross can be placed because they are seizing the means of production and they know that Christianity is the greatest means of production of the development of who somebody is than anything else that's out there in a positive sense. So they have to control that and they have to regulate that. This is what cancel culture is all about. It's not just about winning an election. It's about seizing the means of production. Herbert Marcuse gives the, uh, um, the, the, the quote, the basically that, um, let me see if I can find this on command here. I give a lot of near quotes when I'm talking if I don't have it in front of me, which I'm probably gonna be, have to be regulated to do today. Uh, Marcuse says this, he says, essentially, he talks about this idea of, of tolerance and that tolerance essentially is, is giving free reign to every idea on the left. And by the left, he wasn't talking Democrat, he was talking about the critical theorist. And, and, and regulating, canceling, and, and, and silencing every single voice on the right. And by right, he wasn't meaning Republican, he was meaning those that hold to a conservative worldview uh, based upon a Judeo-Christian framework. So true tolerance is letting everything be heard from the critical theorists from the left, but silencing anybody who holds to a view that would contradict that. That's tolerance. This is why when you say, it doesn't sound very tolerant what you're doing right now, it's exactly how they would define tolerance is what they're doing. 
They're not illogical in this. They're following a religious playbook based upon a theology that they've held to, okay? Are you getting this? So this is, this is critical theory. So, so this idea of seizing the means of production of, of basically human capital, that came into play. And what, what was realized after the, the sort of failed communist uprisings that, that were you know, trying to happen throughout you know, Western Europe is that the proletariat who, who you know, Marx and others would have seen as those useful idiots, the people that can help you, you know, have this uprising to gain control over an oppressive you know, bourgeoisie class, um, that you don't really need them the way that you thought you did, that you could find other partners because they recognize that the proletariat basically is too dumb to know that they're not happy. And they think they're happy, but they're too stupid to realize that they're really being oppressed and they're not really as happy as they think they are. Watching that sunset, you think you're happy? You're not happy. I'll tell you when you're happy. And so this was driving this. And so... What they found is that we don't need the proletariat the way we thought we did. We can find better partners in corporations. We can find better partners in academics, in universities, in unions, in different things that are out there, in other power groups. And this is what gave birth to certain forms of fascism. It's what gave birth to uh, basically what we see today in America of, of basically uh, um, this this corporate Marxism, where it's not about trying to get, you know, I mean, there, there's some still agitation among what a Marxist would call marginalized people groups, but it's being driven by corporations right now. Right. Every commercial you see on television, almost every single one has a critical theory ideology built into the commercial. Right. Everyone, everyone. Why? Because it's a religion, and they're following the playbook and the theology of their religion, okay? And, and I'm not trying to share this as some, you know, this isn't some boogeyman, this isn't conspiracy theory. This is the history of philosophy and religious studies from a lens of critical theory, which is an academic study, for the last, you know, 200 years, okay? This is just, this is just history. And you might go, I don't like history. Well, guess what? If you don't, you will get to live it because it will repeat itself. And it is repeating itself now. And I would argue it's actually repeating itself. Uh, it, it, the repeat of history will likely be worse than, than the history was if we don't recognize that, okay? So um, this, this, uh, uh, this went on. And so we see this, this sort of leveraging of these other groups. Now, here's the way wokeism works, that I'm going to keep calling everything... Um, racist until I have control. So basically, if, if, if a group perceives that another group has power, if I continue to call you racist long enough, I will get the power. And then I am seizing the means of production and I get to be now the bourgeoisie and the one in charge. And now things are fair. It's balancing of, of basically social, you know, uh, the social equity, balancing the social, uh, um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, system in order to be able to flip things on its head. If I call somebody a colonizer long enough, then eventually I get to be the one to colonize others. If I call somebody, you know, um, uh, you know homophobic long enough, 
then eventually I get to be the one who is actually, you know, um, uh, heterophobic and controlling and dictating to hold the power over somebody else. People hear people like me talk about this. Well, let me back up. They don't really hear people like me talk about this. They think they hear people like me talk about this. But what they think they hear is they think they hear somebody standing up here and saying that America needs to all be Christian. No, it doesn't. I hope it is. But only if that happens through the free will and the personal free volition of every single person putting their faith in Christ. I don't want to make America a theocracy. People think that Christians want that. And there's probably some wacko Christians that think they want that that really haven't thought it through well enough. They're actually participating in a form of Christian critical theory without knowing it, doing the very same thing that those who, that they're concerned about are doing to them. I don't need anybody to bow down to my belief system. I don't need anybody to agree with me. I don't need anybody to, you know, I don't need to demand certain rights that I, that, that, that I think I should have that I'm not experiencing right now. Um, I want people to be able to have a thing called liberty. And I am a Christian. I'm also somebody who thinks that although the Constitution is not, that doesn't have the same inerrancy as the scriptures, it's pretty dang good. And, and I do believe that there was an inspiration, if you will, for it. And I want to see people have freedom of choice. I would die for the right for somebody to hold to a Marxist worldview. Even though I think it's terrible and I disagree with it. Because I don't want, nor do I think that God is in the business of forcing himself upon us. I don't believe that we as Christians should be in the business of forcing ourselves on other peoples. Now here's what I will do. I do believe that we should have a right to protect children from propaganda, from brainwashing, from grooming, from people that are seeking to you know, utilize them. <laughs> utilize them in, in a way in which it, it's for the purpose of this uprising. If you study Maoism and what happened in, in really the communist revolution in China, Mao was a mastermind at utilizing children for the revolution. He was not able to successfully really use the older population because they remembered the difference. And this is why there's a great concern that I have that after the boomer generation is either gone or at, a, at an age where they, they cannot offer the same level of strength that they once could, that this world, this nation, is, is in a difficult spot if this continues. This is, why, this is why getting your children a good education that teaches them to think based upon value, Judeo-Christian values and, and ideas like liberty is so important. Because otherwise, they are being given something very, very specific, and they're being taught through a lens of critical theory, which is a lens that seeks to just oppress others until they hold control themselves. Within us, within a, uh, um, uh, you know, and, and, and here's the reality. There is no, it's a conspiracy theory to think that there is some sort of, you know, systemic oppression on the world other than the law of sin and death. That's the only thing oppressing you. 
It's the law of sin and death. That's the systemic oppression that everybody thinks that they're pointing at something else. They think it's, they think it's the man. They think it's white people. They think it's corporations. They think it's this or that. The reality is um, the oppression that we feel is the law of sin and death. But Jesus came to set us free from the law of sin and death. As I thought, I don't know if I'm gonna get through my message I intended for one week and two weeks. Um, <laughs> Marxism seeks to redistribute wealth and abolish private property. This is part of that seizing the means of production. The Bible, on the contrary, promotes the idea of private property. It promotes the idea of personal stewardship. It promotes the idea of sovereign borders. You hear a lot, this idea today of a global citizen. If I'm a global citizen, then who, am I, who is my allegiance to? Because a citizen implies a sovereign state, and a sovereign state implies a sovereign leader. So who is the sovereign leader over this globalist state? If I am a global citizen. And I would say the only sovereign leader over the global state is God. And what the world is asking me to submit to and what God asks me to submit to are two very, very different things. And so as Christians, we honor, we honor rulers who are rightly established based upon, based upon you know, uh, 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 God and based upon values that we find here. Romans 13 is not a blanket thing that, that Christians have to listen to every single person in government. It's, it is a statement that says when a ruler is punishing the evildoer and protecting the righteous, that we submit ourselves to them because they are God's servants and they also carry the sword, it says. So we submit to, that's called a righteous ruler. What the Bible presents in, passage, in people like Daniel and a lot of other figures, and we see this in Peter and John in the New Testament, is that there's a thing called civil disobedience when a ruler becomes an unrighteous ruler and is all of a sudden infringing upon your sovereignty to be able to, to follow the Lord, seek the Lord, you walk out your Christian faith in obedience to him. We don't become troublemakers in society. We don't become rebel rousers. We don't become you know, people who are, are trying to harm others or do anything, instigators. That, that is never the Christian perspective. But we are not called to submit blindly when somebody's asking you to go against your faith. But yet this is exactly what we saw from so many Christians, you know, over the last three, four years. Just happily following along and towing the line. I'm gonna run out of time. Um, if you guys wanna take a lunch break, I'll be back here. No, just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I, I keep wanting not leaving this like on the negative, but there's so much that we have to get through. And I promise you that where this is headed is, is really seeing Jesus for who he is. Because what's behind all of this is a different interpretation of Christ. That's really what's behind this. What's behind this is basically a statement, I, I kind of referenced this historical Jesus movement. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a Jesus that is different than the Jesus of the Bible. It's a Jesus who is a human Jesus who's a champion of the state. He's, he's the champion of the people. The, in Nazi Germany, Hitler was deeply impacted by the historical Jesus movement. He called Jesus the Jew destroyer, and he saw him as a champion who stood against the Pharisees and the Sadducees 
stood against them, and they actually believed that, that he had one of his disciples die in his place, uh, that he didn't die himself because champions don't die. They don't give their life. They win, okay? And, and so there was all sorts of these false beliefs, but that was the Jesus that was used to push Aryan Christianity. And, and so this, this is all a false gospel presentation of Jesus that is driving this. I, for, when, when, you know, if you would have taken me back 10, 20 years ago, you know, when we first started the church 20 years ago, I, I knew that there were things that were gonna come in the future that were gonna try our faith. I never perceived it possible that it would be a false understanding of Christianity that would be the thing that would try the faith. I would have said just straight atheistic communism, radical Islam. You know, those were the things that Christians had on their radar. But what we didn't see coming was a form of Christianity that uses the same terminology as Christianity, but was promoting a false gospel. And so this is why it's so important that as believers that we learn to push in the word at a greater level because you know it, it's it's the 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 um, the old adage or and I don't you know I, 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 everybody says this enough I assume it's true but I have no idea if that's really how they do it that you know the, the secret service when they're trying to tell you know if if money's you know fake or counterfeit they study the real thing right we have to know what the fake looks like enough that we can recognize them but we have to study the real thing and developing a personal relationship with Jesus is the most important thing that you can do. What does a personal relationship with Jesus look like? It looks like, first of all, that you submit to his lordship. You recognize him as both, as both God and man. I call, you know, he is that intersectionality. He's the place where, where the sinfulness of man and the, the, the holiness and the righteousness of the divine met. He didn't have any sin in of himself, but he took upon our sin when he went to the cross to pay the price. And we have to, we, we, why do we start there? We start there because if I don't see my sin as contributing to him going to the cross, then I'm already living in a delusion. I'm already, I'm already seeing him as something less than he is because I am not righteous by myself. I don't deserve anything by myself. I don't have any reason that anybody should do anything nice for me by myself. All I have is his righteousness. And, and the Bible would say that, that outside of that, that our best day, our most righteous acts are as a filthy rag. And so we start there and that puts us in a place to where we can actually receive his grace. I wanna receive his example, his teachings. I, I hope that the church gets better at reaching the, the, the downtrodden, the homeless, and, and those who are uh, you know, those who are in need and, and, and you know, uh, that, that whether it's clothes, food, you know, uh, um, you know uh, uh, various forms of assistance, we have to get better at that as believers. We should be leading the charge in that. But if we make that our idol and we're doing that because somebody deserves it rather than he did for me something I don't deserve, so therefore I want to show that love to the world around me, that's what drives our service that Christ loved me first, so therefore I'm going to love others first. He did for me what I don't deserve, so therefore I'm going to do for others what they don't deserve. Rather than making the work an idol as a goal of trying just to bring about some form of equity 
and making everybody who has something feel guilty because you have something. That's not Christianity. Um, And so, I don't know if this is what you expected when you came to church today. I don't know if this is what I expected when I came to church today. But this is where we are. And so, my, my, you know, um, I don't know where all of you come from and your background. Maybe you're all here because you believe, you know, uh, uh, that this is the fight of our life and you want to learn about it. Maybe you're here because you just want to know the Lord more. Maybe, maybe you're here because you heard that there's some pastor saying this stuff and you want to try to prove that I'm a Christian nationalist or something like that. Um, for the record, I, I uh, uh, reject Christian nationalism in my book. Um, despite the fact that people still accuse me of being a Christian nationalist. But all I know is that regardless of what brought you here, my hope is that the outcome of you being here would be a deeper relationship with Jesus himself. And, and that, you know what, I know that there might be somebody here that's going like, Lucas, you're talking about this stuff, and yeah, that, those are big issues on the world stage, but like, bro, I'm sick. I need, I need healed or my marriage has fallen apart. Like, what does Marx have to do with that? Marx doesn't have anything to do with your marriage falling apart. And maybe he has a little bit to do with your marriage falling apart. But, but at the heart of why your health, your marriage, your finances, your mental health, your, all these things that we're all, you know, at times have a come against us, what's really behind all of that is the same thing that allows something like these ideologies to exist. It's... It's a, it's, it's, the, it's not knowing him fully. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you're here today and, and you know, life has you know, kind of kicked you around a little bit, God loves you, we love you. There's no condemnation for you. And in fact, there's a place that you could be a month from now, three months from now, six months from now, if you just gave the Lord a little time that you would not even recognize that life could be as good as it could be, that your health could be as good as it could be, that your marriage could be as good as it can be. Do bad things happen? Do, do some situations not work? I don't want to paint you a pie-in-the-sky thing of life. Sometimes life does not go the direction that we want it to, but I believe to the degree that God is able, you could see a transformation in your life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, I pray that you take these, these words that are probably not sufficient at all to be able to communicate some of these concepts or principles and that you would just, just download to your people, Lord, that this would become useful and helpful. Uh, Lord, if nothing else, it would inspire people to learn about these things so they could help the next generation. And Lord, that we would learn how to talk to people who are in school, our grandkids, our nieces, our Um, Lord, other people in our life, that we would learn how to talk to young couples and young singles, Lord, that in a way in which can can build them up and strengthen them and and mentor them and guide them, Lord, that we would would see a role in the older teaching the younger. This is how we avoid this in the future. This is the way forward. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for all that you've done in our lives. Lord, I pray that this would just, uh, that this would, as much as it feels heavy in some of these topics, 
that we would see ultimately that you are the one who carries our burden and that, that your grace is sufficient to empower us to be able to take a stand in a day of trial and temptation. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name. Amen. Church, thanks for being here today. Have a great week. We love you. We'll see you soon.